Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Um, we're so grateful for uh, all the things that you are doing. And in this community, as we have just honored uh, those who are following in your way, as you have told us to give honor where honor is due, we recognize that all of the glory and honor and the praise of that goes ultimately to you. So uh, in the midst of honoring our community, God, we are lifting you up and what it is that you are doing in this world, and we just want to get on board with that. Help us to know it better. Help us to see it more clearly. Uh, Help us to be more impassioned to live out your kingdom. As you already know, God, this world desperately needs a new way of being human in this world. And you have shown us what that way is. So help us to live into that way, not just as a Christian on Sundays or whatever, but truly throughout every moment in every aspect of our lives. This is our prayer. So as we dig into your word and our history, may some of that be illuminated for us yet again so that we can see and follow through and remember and live in that way. And we pray in your name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Title of my message is Look Back. Uh, Last week, Danielle did this beautiful Um, message on, you've stayed long enough at this mountain, and now it's time to get out of here. You've stayed here. Go. It's time to move on. And what I'd like to do is go back and revisit some of those verses and take a look at the first three chapters of of Deuteronomy. For those of you who have just joined us, we're in this um, very beginning stages of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, There are five main books in the opening portions of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy forms the last book of the major first section, and it is a retelling of these stories. And so we've gone through all these teachings, and um, kind of a side note, a little bit of footnote, if you want to kind of understand the full breadth of this, I'm going to encourage you to go back to 2013 under Sparks Teaching Archive and check out all 90-some-odd teachings from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. They set the foundation, actually, for what it is that we're doing here and why it's important for us to continue on with our story. And today is going to be um, exactly along those lines. Um, The title is Look Back. Scholars have a way of, of, of making things more complicated than they need to. Um, and so they like to use the phrase historical inventory. I'm just going to say look back. Um, so you can use whichever phraseology that you want. But a historical inventory is usually what they call these first three chapters of Deuteronomy. And the analogy that I'd like to embed into your mind, some of you have seen this analogy before as a swing. And this is one of my daughter's favorite activities. She loves the underdog. And then I stand in front of her as she kicks me in the behind. And I play all sorts of games with her. Um, I'm trying to teach her how to actually swing rather than depend upon me as the motor and the engine until she's like 40, right? So what I'm trying to do is teach her how to swing. Now, for those of you who um, have ever learned how to swing or tried to teach somebody how to swing, what do you need to do to actually swing? You need what? Pump your legs. What does that mean? Pump. It's hard to describe... (laughs) In fact, it's hard. There's a lot of things that our bodies do that we don't actually think about. Did you know that when you're riding a bicycle to turn right, you have to first turn left? Because what's happening is the centrifugal force of your bicycle has to be counteracted by the leaning. And so what you do is you actually turn left first, which gets your body moving in a certain direction so that you can turn right. Anyway, I don't know why I'm telling you that. That was not in the notes. But anyway, (laughs) in order to swing, you have to do two movements simultaneously. 
that are in the opposite direction. In order to swing, you actually have to do two movements that are in the opposite direction, and you have to do them simultaneously. At one particular end of the swing, you have to kick forward while you lean back. But then at the other end of the swing, you actually have to lean forward while you kick back. And the swing has become a really powerful analogy for me for what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to be a human, really, is that in order for us to move forward into this world, in order for us to get into the swing of things, to understand... (laughs) Yeah, sorry. In order for us to really get what it is that we're trying to do, we are constantly having to do two opposite things at the same time. And I will tell you that throughout the entire journey of my faith, this has been absolutely true. When it, following Jesus, you, you know, you're learning about Jesus, and you're moving forward, and you're trying to push this movement into the 20th and 21st century, and you're um, being innovative, and you're wanting to gain all new sorts of new technologies, and start thinking, especially back when I got started, it was black cloth and candles and prayers and all sorts of cool things, and how to be, reach out and be relevant to all the young people, and we're going to be cool and hip and have, you know, tight skinny jeans, and which to- never mind, not a good idea. So, so there's all these ways in which we want to push forward, but, but part of the problem of just constantly pushing forward into innovation is that we forget who we are, and part of the problem of constantly remembering who we are, constantly reflecting back, is that we don't actually consider and think about the movements of our culture into the, into the future. And so the swing has become this really powerful analogy for what does it mean to actually move forward in the world into our challenges, into our issues, into all the great opportunities that we have. We have to do two things simultaneously. We have to move forward, but we also have to be pushing back, pulling back, reaching back at the same time. One of the great um, stories that I think illustrate this is um, in July of 1961, there's a very famous football coach named Vince Lombardi. He was a coach of the Green Bay Packers. Now, I have since forgotten all about football, so I apologize if you know this story better than I do because I'm going to get it jumbled up in my brain. But apparently, in the late season of 1961, the Green Bay Packers lost the NFC Championship to the Philadelphia Eagles, and they lost really, really badly. So badly that Vince Lombardi decided that he was going to initiate a new way of coaching And so in July, during spring training or summer training, um, he actually did something which was uh, kind of like so simple, so uh, you're not quite sure how to categorize it, that um, what he did is is, um, listed, uh, told about in uh, David Moranis' book, When Pride Still Mattered. During this particular, the very first meeting of the Green Bay Packers summer training, um, he writes this, uh, David writes this, he took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, this is a football. (laughs) And this story from Vince Lombardi becomes an iconic story to describe some of the greatest speeches, greatest movements, greatest leadership principles come from people being able to bring it down simply to what things are, to even look back, to to recognize that level of simplicity. So part of what we're going to get to in the swing is what is just the simple thing that we need to remember about the Israelites as they move forward. And it can be as simple as, this is the land of Israel. 
This, let's just start with the basics here. And some of the basics are actually pretty profound um, once you start there and realize. Like last week, we went over some of the place names, right, of uh, Hazaroth and Dizahab and Edion Gezer and all these different places, and, and we're just glossing over. What we may not realize and recognize is that when Deuteronomy starts there, this is a football. Here's the land. Here are the places that you're going. You're looking at places that have for millennia been the center of attention, of power, of commerce, of economic strife. And even to this particular day, the land that they were talking about, all of those particular places are still, to this day, in the center of attention, of power, uh, of economics. And so back then, when they were saying, listen, I need to lay out for you the land. Here's the land. Here's the south. Here's the north. Here's the valley, here's the mountains, here's the hillside and countryside, we gloss over these particular issues. We think, well, that's not very um, interesting, or it's just so simple. It's like, why do you need to outline that? And part of the answer is because in going forward, as Danielle was mentioning last week, as we are pushing forward, do not forget to also go back and remember. And we don't have time in this particular talk. Every single one of those place names is tied to an Old Testament story in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, or Numbers. Um, I'll just give you one, Suf, the, the city named Suf. If you remember the, well, it's, it's hard in English. Moses has this event that you might know about where he leads a bunch of people out of Egypt um, with a big staff and apparently a red coat and very broad shoulders and a nice beard. And he leads these people out through what? The Red Sea. In your English, it says Red Sea. In your Hebrew, it is the Reed Sea. And the Hebrew for Reed is Suf. And so when the Bible writers in Deuteronomy are mentioning from Suf, that just one place name is recalling... Oh, remember we were slaves in Egypt. Do you remember what God did? Do you remember that miracle? Do you remember Moses? Do you remember how angry he was with us? Do you know how crazy he was? Do you remember that? And that, all of that story, all of that history is also being pulled into their present time, into being pushed forward. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 1 also invokes the whole story of the spies going into this land. Down here um, in the lower portion, they're looking up into this land and saying, should we go up in there? And two people go up, Caleb and, and Joshua, they go up and they go, the land is good. And they come back. Does anybody remember what they're carrying? They're carrying clusters of grapes. And the clusters, by the way, is the icon and the symbol of the Israeli Ministry of Tourism to this day. So if you are interested in tourism, it comes from this particular story. And so, so they are just, don't, don't forget that. Remember that story? So the first three chapters of Deuteronomy are going to remind us of these very simple Reminder stories, remember, if you go back and reread them and pull them through, it will make a lot more sense to you. For the Israelites, this is a football. Don't forget Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, parting of the Reed Sea, not Red Sea. In fact, I like telling people to cross things out of their Bible in English because it's fun for me. Or you can just add an E into the red and make it a Reed Sea. Don't forget those things. And I would say there's something profound for us, actually, to not forget. 
Absolutely, we have stayed here too long. It is time to move forward. We can't grieve forever. We can't lament how the church is forever. We can't just be upset and frustrated and angry that the church isn't moving as progressive as we want or as conservative as we want. We have to move on. We have stayed too long here, as Danielle was talking about last week. We have to move on. And what I'm going to suggest to you, the first three chapters of Deuteronomy are going to say, as you move on, don't forget to look back. Because looking back is the only way that you are going to move forward in a way that's going to be redemptive and healthy for you. So, two weeks ago, I shared with you, attempted to share with you, that this phrase, the law, which, so here's Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 5, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law as follows. Now remember, we said this word is Torah, or Torah. It doesn't mean law in the sense that we think of legislation or a list of do's and don'ts that you should or should not obey that are abstracted from a reality. Because if you take a look at what happens immediately after this verse in verse 5, what comes next over the next three chapters is this, identification of land and place, an installment of leadership. He talks about the development. It's like, you guys are way too burdensome for me, Moses says. So I need some leaders. Um, Yeah, Pastor Tom, Pastor Marcus, Pastor Omer. You guys handled the things. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But that's essentially what Moses is doing there. There's a recounting of rebellion. Don't forget how you were unfaithful, how you didn't trust the Lord your God. There's a retelling of battles. That's going to be really upsetting for us. The battles where they completely destroy the Anakites and they completely destroy the Canaanites, those are going to be disturbing stories for us. But they are part of the history and they're part of the story. And so they retell that. And then there are two main themes that emerge from the Torah, the law. Remember, I'm not trying to move on from the phrase the law, but this teaching and this guidance of wisdom. There's an awareness of God's faithfulness and there's awareness of our unfaithfulness. So let me show you a couple examples of those and why they're listed there. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 26 writes, says this, but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Remember, this is a football And again, what's happening here is you might pat yourself on the back and think that you've got it all made. Hey, we survived the 40 years. We survived the Egyptians. We survived going through the Red Sea. We survived manna and quail in the desert. Rock on. Don't forget, you were unwilling to actually go up. You were stubborn people. Don't forget that. That is also part of your story. That's also part of your football. And immediately after that, there's like this back and forth, Deuteronomy 1.30. The Lord your God who goes before you is the one who will fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your every before your very eyes, sorry, that's a typo there, and in in the wilderness where you saw, I love this phrase, how the Lord your God carried you just as one carries a child all the way that you traveled until you reached this place. What a beautiful phrase. You rebelled, but God was carrying you. Do not forget that. How simply and quickly and easily we forget how God has carried us. Verse 32. But in spite of this, you have no trust in the Lord your God who goes before you on the way to seek out a place. I mean, what is wrong with you people? Don't you see? You know, you, although I told you, you would not listen. You rebelled against the command of the Lord. I, uh, okay. Chapter 2. But surely the Lord has blessed you in all your undertakings. He knows you're going through this great wilderness, these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. 
And then fascinatingly enough, there's this little story about one of the kings and his bed. Now, only King Og of Bashan was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. In fact, his bed and iron bed can still be seen in Rabbah by the Ammonites, by the common cubit of nine cubits and long and 14. Yeah, so just so you know, there's a bed and some instructions. Nine cubits, by the way, is 13 feet. That's how long that bed is. So it gives you a little bit of a sense of who these are. It's so fascinating that, that in the midst of this goodness, there's a bed there that proves. The bed is almost like this uh, prop that God is using to say, you remember those giants? Yeah, we actually have the bed. Remember those giants? I saved you from them. Your own eyes have seen everything that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. Do not fear them. It is the Lord your God. God is fighting for you. But the Lord was angry with you, with me on account, and would not heed me. The Lord said to Moses, enough from you, never speak of this matter again. The first three chapters go back and forth in this particular sense of recounting the goodness of God and the unfaithfulness of the people. I'm going to ruin something for you. Um, We have often frequently spoke about how this relationship that is the foundation for this movement of God with the people is very much like a marriage covenant. Have we, have we talked about that before? Are you familiar with the phrase marriage covenant? In fact, we talk about covenant and we talk about it in the context of a marriage. But when you read Deuteronomy in this particular way, absolutely it's a marriage covenant. But it sounds much more like this. Remember, like, like if I'm going to just make up my own vows and share my love with my beloved, you're standing there and you're about to share the deepest sentiments of your heart and how I love you from the depths of my soul and everything about you is, is so beautiful. Um, but every time we went out, all you did was text on the phone. But, but I was still there. I was still there. I was, I was with you. Even though you ignored me, I was with you and I stayed with you and I was present with you. And the next day, you completely forgot my birthday and Valentine's Day, and you totally broke my heart. But, but I didn't leave you. I carried you, and I nurtured you, and I still fed you breakfast in bed. And then you decided to do that thing on Tinder. And I have no idea why you did that, but I did not go on Tinder. I was still with you, and I carried you, and I loved you, and I still got you flowers. And then, even after that, you totally forsook me. You didn't even believe anything that I was telling you about my love for you. You went and did the most dastardly deed. You went on ChristianMingle.com. How could you do this? But I was here, and I stayed faithful to you. Are you getting the feel? Like This is what's going on in this particular story. So next time you think about a marriage covenant and marriage vows, I want you to think about that. Like That is what's going on here. The entire narrative of Deuteronomy 1 through 3 is this back and forth about God. God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness. And this, my friends, is the football. You want to get back to the basics of this whole thing as we're going to move into the promised land and we're going to establish a new society and a new nation and a new way of being human. That the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Analekites, all these other people that you're going to be around, they are going to envy you because of the kind of community and nation you are going to become. But do not forget the football. You broke my heart. You were untrusting of me. You were unfaithful. You, your eyes went astray. This is, an, this is a crazy beginning to a story. And it's really kind of humbling and concerning at some particular points. But I think there's something really powerful going on here that I'd like to share with you some thoughts about what may be happening here. 
And they're all summed up in two words. What's the football? The football is God is faithful, we are unfaithful. That's it. That's all you need to know. What's the football? God is faithful, we are unfaithful. The reason why you have to tell that story over and over and over again about the wars, uh, about the falling short, about how people didn't make it, about the bed, the Ikea bed that is stuck in my mind about 13 feet. Um, The reason why you have to tell that particular story is because there is something really, really powerful about history and memory and the development of who we are as people. And so let us not forget our unfaithfulness and let us not forget God's faithfulness for as we move into the future, those will be the grounding principles that will shape how we grow and develop. Principle number one, there's three main principles with this that I hope are helpful for you. I hope it's not too convoluted. The first thing is that there's uncertainty. How many of you know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow? Or Tuesday? Or dare I say 2020? (laughs) November. (laughs) How many of you know? Yeah, we don't. Uh, How many of you know where your stock is going if you're invested in the stock market? How many of you know exactly where your relationship is going? How many of you know exactly where your job is going? The future is fundamentally uncertain, and that has been true throughout all all of history. Humans have had to adapt to uncertainty. We have always had to adapt. We don't know what's going to happen. And then the reason why we get so upset is because we think we know. We have some certainty in, in this movement, and all of a sudden you get a note. You get a call. You get that horrible news. And you were not expecting that to happen. Illness, sickness, loss of job some sort of trade. The future is always uncertain. Principle number one. What have we done and what have the Israelites modeled for us in this midst? In the midst and in the face of an uncertain future, we know about the past. The reason why we tell stories, the reason why we recall history, the reason why we go back is because that doesn't change and we know it. Those stories haven't changed. Those stories are real. Those stories are true. Those stories are certain. We can go back and remind ourselves of who we were, who we wanted to be, who God is, who God was. And so recalling the story, even of our unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness, is really important for shaping who we are, our identity, our purpose, and how we understand ourselves in the midst of a very uncertain future. That's why we tell stories. You don't know what the future is, but you do know the past. And so that's really, really important. And the past is important to inform, that's who I was and look what happened. That's who God was and look what happened. This is now who I now need to be. This is now who God will be as we move into the future. And the ancient Israelites understood this principle. You tell stories, you bring up history because the past is certain when the future is uncertain. And I would suggest to you in the midst of oh, so much chaos, so many different things, of you, you have no idea where you're going to be living. You have no idea where your job is going to be. You have no idea what's going to happen to your family. You have to retell yourself these stories. Remember how God showed up here. Remember how he was faithful here. Remember how I totally fell short, and yet God carried me as a parent carries his child. I need to remember that. And that is a really powerful grounding narrative and idea for moving forward into an uncertain future. And it recalls what faith in God actually is and what it means. Tell the story. 
Because the stories are certain when the future is uncertain, when you have no idea what's coming. Number two, memory is connected to place. Memory is connected to place. Throughout Deuteronomy, you are going to see name places. You're going to see where they're going to go and how they're going to set up camp in these particular towns and cities. And those names are foreign to us, and I get that. And that's hard and challenging for us. But the reason why you tell the story of the past and the reason why you try to remember what happened there is because when you go into a certain place, you recognize that the events that have shaped you and molded you and formed you are actually connected to that physical land, physical place. Um, Danielle and I got married in Vegas. I wasn't going to say that. Amen? Did somebody say amen to that? It's crazy. What? The Elvis Chapel. No, it wasn't the Elvis Chapel, um, but it was a drive-thru. So anyway, moving on. Uh, we, I cannot tell you, I cannot go to Vegas, I cannot think about Vegas, I cannot even watch a show where it takes place in Vegas without recalling my wedding. It is impossible. The place owns that memory, and the memory owns that particular place. And so part of why you retell the story is you recall the memories of that place. And part of the reason why you go into that place again and retell a new story is because sometimes you're redeeming that place. Sometimes you go into that place and you go, I know what this place feels like. I remember the tragedy. I remember the sadness. I remember what happened here. But now I'm going to go in. You know those stories in your Bible where it says, and they completely destroyed everything? Part of what's going on there is recognizing that places hold memories. And what you're trying to do is rebuild new memories and redeem those places for new stories. And so you bring that with you, and you go in, and you utterly destroy, and you rebuild because you're trying to redeem that place with a whole new memory and give it a whole new sense of meaning. In our work, in some of what we've done in our, in our church at Spark, we recognize that church, for many people, is not a safe place. When you sing a song, you see a guitar or a piano or a worship song. Because of some of the people in our community and the experiences that they've had in church, all of that is connected to that negative place, that negative memory, that negative space. And what I find applicable about what Deuteronomy is doing is to recognize that the places that we inhabit Bring with them those memories. I want to hear your story. I cannot move forward. We cannot move forward until we actually hear those stories, until we engage with those stories. Tell me the story of that place and what that means to you and what you feel when you go into those places. Tell me that. And once I can enter into that, then and only then can then we begin to rewrite a whole new narrative a whole new memory, a whole new sense of meaning in that place. And so as we're moving forward, I don't know if you remember this or recall this, but the Israelites have actually been in that space before. They've been in Israel before. Abraham was there, Isaac was there, Jacob was there, and then they got exiled to Egypt, and now they're heading back. And they're having to now retell the story of that space and retell the story of that place. The place names are important because they 
Places reside in our memories. Memories reside in those places. And part of why they're bringing it with them is because they're redeeming those places. And I hope that Spark becomes um, a people and a community and a church where if that is the feeling, that church is like, I can't go there because of the hurt or the damage or the, the abuse or whatever it is that I have faced whenever I even see a Bible. I mean, those are very real traumas. It is our hope that we can hold the stories, that we can listen to those stories and help together redeem the place so that we can redeem those memories. Last, if you take story and if you take memory and meaning and all those things and put it all together, bring it with you into the future. Remember the story, remember the past, how you were unfaithful, what God did. Remember the places and, and redeeming those places with the memories and experiences that we had and put those all together, this is actually how we make laws and legislation and move forward. I meant to have that come up later, but look at that. <laughs> have you ever run into a rule and realized there's a reason why somebody wrote that rule? Like, do I really need a rule for no bears? Yes, because let me tell you about, and now I'm into a story. You see what happens? I remember signing paperwork um, a long time ago for a deal that was, was being done. And it was like paper after paper after paper after paper. And I was having a conversation with this person. I was like, has it always been this complicated? He's like, no. 50 years ago, it was one piece of paper. And then what happened? People were unfaithful. People were greedy. People were not honoring. And what happened? A new piece of paper. <laughs> A new piece of paper. Oh, by the way, you can't do... Okay, somebody did that. Okay, by the way, you now can't do this. There's a, one of my favorite signs. I couldn't find it for this. Um, but it was an electric fence sign. It says, um, touching the fence will lead to instant death and a $200 fine. <laughs> it's, like, it's so funny. Hilarious. Same with bears. We bring those stories and those memories with us. And we tell those stories and we bring those memories and we churn in that past. What is known as the historical narrative, the historical inventory, the historical prologue. Chapters 1 through 3 is retelling all those stories of the wars, the unfaithfulness, you know, the marriage covenant, I love you, I love you, you hate me, you hate me, I love you, all of that stuff. is telling all of that because it is based upon that that the development of what we say is justice is now going to take place, not because of some divine command that God says it, therefore you do it without any questions, but because it has come and emerged out of a story. Because of people acting a certain way. Do you remember how they treated you? Do you remember what it was like to be under the yoke of the Egyptians? Do you remember how you were treated? Yeah, don't forget that story. And that is why when it comes to Sabbath that your manservant and your maidservant should also embrace the Sabbath. So the laws that we see that are coming in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the 10 and 15, etc., the laws, the, the stipulations that are coming, we have to read those in light of the Israelites, first of all, recalling and retelling their story. We were unfaithful. The other people were oppressive. All of this stuff happened to us, and now this is why we honor the Sabbath. This is why we don't murder. This is why we don't covet. This is why we... Why? Because of all of that history, of all of that past. Story and memory is how we do justice. 
It's not just that we come up with arbitrary laws and you follow them. Laws, justice, legislation, everything that is coming for how to create an orderly society is deeply rooted in the past. And so if you want to move forward and create a just society, we have to go back and remember the story. And part of the reason why this is so powerful in the Deuteronomy story is because the story is not so great. The story is about us. It's not just about other people. The story is about how we were unfaithful. In his uh, book, A Theory of Justice, John Rawls has given a very nice definition that I think really works. He's a moral theorist. Um, he's taught, written extensively on justice. Uh, he was invited to the White House to actually consult on the development of legislation, etc. And he wrote this. Uh, justice is a characteristic set of principles for assigning basic, and I love this, rights and duties. And for determining what they take to be the proper distribution of the benefits and burdens of social cooperation. And the reason why I like that definition is because I have a feeling that some of us think that legislation and justice is only about rights, but not about duties. It's only about benefits, but not about burdens. And part of what Deuteronomy is telling us is that we actually have a duty and that we have a burden and we have a responsibility. As we are moving forward into this promised land, we actually have to own something. And it's not just about rights and benefits and privileges and all, the, all of the up-the-up up things, the, the high-end things of what justice is. It's also about responsibility. It's also about duties. It's also about burdens. And the only way that you can get to that theory of justice is by telling the story of how you screwed up and telling the story of how we screwed up and telling the story of how God was faithful anyway. In the Deuteronomy commentary and the JPS commentary, Jeffrey Tagay writes this. Religious belief in the Bible is based mostly on Israel's experience of God rather than on theological speculation. And what he means by that is we as a community are going through the desert together and we're learning how to live and love and be with one another. <gasps> you, oh, I can't believe you did that. I must have now learned something about who we are and how we act and how we behave. And it is from that story that we develop. Please don't commit adultery. Please don't covet. And if we forget the story behind the laws that are coming, we will not have done justice. Because we're just implementing a rule. What does it mean for us? Story and memory is how we make justice. This is exactly what we have actually lived by and part of the crisis that many of us feel like we're facing in American democracy. We have a constitution, right? We have rules and laws. Uh, this is the Article 1 of, of, of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, extrapolated for any particular story, those words can mean anything. But part of the, what you do, hopefully, in constitutional law, for those of you who study this and know this far better than I do, is you actually go back and tell the story. Why did they write that in the first place? What was going on? Tell me what the English were doing. I'll be back. <laughs> tell me about what caused that to emerge. This does not just come out of divine revelation. It comes out of a story. 
For those of you who have been a part of our seders in the past, you know that there's this portion of the seder, which is a celebration of the Passover, the exodus out of Egypt. And there are all these things you're supposed to do in recognition of the Passover seder. Uh, There's this one section where the children are supposed to ask some questions as they do. It's part of a way of saying that children naturally ask questions. Do not squelch them from asking questions, which is part of why, if you're a part of Sparking, you know this, any question is not only welcome, but it's celebrated. And there's one portion of the order of that dinner that we serve together that says, when your children ask you, why are we doing this? What is this all? Why do we have to eat this matzah? Why on this night? Why are we slaughtering the lamb? Why did God command us to do this? Your answer is not because God commanded it. What's your answer? Does anybody remember? We were slaves in Egypt. Story is intimately connected with justice. Story is intimately connected with law. Story is intimately connected with how to become a people of faith. I've already mentioned uh, Preet Bahara's book, In, In Doing Justice, a couple weeks ago. And uh, the next segment of his book, he tells another story um, about the Menendez brothers who murdered their parents. And he tells the story about somebody who knew the Menendez brothers and just uh, the, the, the anguish and the grievance of there is no way, I have no conception in my mind. For, no way it was them. No way. And he tells his stories much more elaborately. And he tells that story to set up one of the fundamental principles is that you really don't know anybody from a judicial standpoint. But he has to tell the story to get there. Um, I've been reading Jose Antonio Vargas's book, Dear America. And there's a lot of discussion re- regarding immigration and what that means and all that stuff. And what I love about this book and uh, what I love about the engagement that we have had regarding this particular topic and challenge in, in our contemporary society is that our, our community has engaged deeply with the stories of those people who are actually having to live. And a couple you know, months ago, we had Jesus share publicly about his particular story. And that story has to inform how we do law. It can't just simply be... these are, Like the, the rhetoric from anybody, whether it be governmental or whether it be religious, this is just the law is inadequate according to our story. If you say, we have, this is law. Law, that's what the law says. And I hear religious people do the same. That's just what the Bible says. It's very clear. That is what the Bible says. And it could be over any particular topic. It could be about gender or sexuality or money, or it could be about hierarchy and government and the church. This is what, it's just what God says. And what I'm suggesting to you, according to our Deuteronomical story, is that that is inadequate. No law in our story emerges just because God said all of these laws come out of our experiences and our stories and how God was faithful and we were unfaithful and we are working together for that. And so, my friends, that is what I'm suggesting is how we get into the swing of things. And that's the football. We have to move forward. Danielle is absolutely correct. It's time to move on. We have to push forward. There's a beautiful world in front of us, and we are ready to embrace what is coming. But it is also uncertain. We're not quite sure exactly how it's going to work out. So we lean back into our story for the things that are certain, and we embrace that story for the formulation of who we want to be and who we can become. 
and then how we create this world as we move forward. And for the rest of Deuteronomy, as we get to the stories of the Ten Commandments and the legal code and what you should do and not do, I hope that we never forget that the reason why those are there is because they started off with a story. They started off with telling you, hey, remember when we were slaves? Remember when we beat these particular people? Remember how God carried us through the desert? Remember what it was like to be freed and liberated? Don't ever forget those stories and those experiences. And for you personally, my friends, I would encourage you, maybe as a practical application, is to do a historical inventory on your spiritual journey. I, this is something that I've actually done recently. It's been amazingly eye-opening. Uh, I often forget when I was a sophomore in high school, when I had my first experience with true acceptance and love and family. I come from a divorced family where there's broken home and broken dishes and yelling and violence, and I'm still dealing with all the crap of that. And I remember when I was a sophomore in high school, there was a group of people that gave me a family when I didn't have one. And I remember, and, and when I think about today and all the things and, and issues that we're challenged with uh, regarding the church and Christianity and faith and all that kind of stuff, just simply going back to the story and reminding, oh, that's what, I'm, that, that's what this story is about. All of what we're doing, every time I try to put a tech script together and music together and website together and, you know, all of the things, all the rules. I, oh, I got to file for insurance again for the church. Okay, I'm doing all of the stuff that you got to do, all the laws and the legality of it. Oh, the reason why I'm doing that is because a long time ago, I was accepted into a family when I feel like I didn't have one. And what do I want to do? But create that exact same thing for others. What I do now is connected to that story. That's what gives meaning and purpose. And then church has a whole new sense of meaning and purpose. So we're moving forward, friends, as we swing back, kick back, lean back into that story. And you personally take a moment and just think about your story. How did God bring you here? How was God faithful? And how were you unfaithful? What, what did you miss? And take that inventory for any time you now hear from here on out the Bible says you should X, you should connect it back to the story. How does that help me understand that experience that I had with the risen Savior, with the Spirit, with God's love? How, oh, that's how that works, and that's how we move forward. I'm going to ask the team to come forward. Allison's going to, I'm so thankful for Allison playing for us, um, lead us in our follow-up song and our communion song. And what beautiful expression is this? except we are now telling the story again by eating a meal. And every time you take communion, you are doing exactly that. You're leaning back. You're kicking back into the story that was told. What was that story? There was a person by the name of Jesus who many years ago decided that he was going to enter into the darkest, most gruesome, most evil places and bring out of that death and chaos and darkness life and meaning and purpose and joy and family and connection. That's what, that, that's what this symbolizes. Every time you eat this and drink this, remember me, lean back, as you move forward in your faith. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So as we sing, to come as you are, to join into this family, you are welcome to help yourself to communion, to take a piece of the bread and dip it into the juice. And as you take the body and the blood of Christ as symbolized in the elements, you are once again retelling the story of God's radical, reckless love and acceptance of you. Amen. My dear Sparker friends, uh, I pray that as we all together move forward, that we together would lean back and bring with us the beauty and the joy, the tragedy and the hope of the stories that are behind us. And as you move into an uncertain future, I pray that you will lean heavily, heavily on the past of God's faithfulness to rewrite your uncertainty into once again a joyous and beautiful faith in this uncertain world. Bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you guys next week.